to the bookcase. Welcome back. If you've been a listener and welcome for the first time, if you haven't been a listener and if you haven't been a listener, you've been missing out, but you tuned into the right show because today we have the amazing Barbara Kingsolver. If you haven't read Demon Copperhead, her new book, I highly recommend it. And oh, by the way, I haven't introduced myself. Have I? I'm Kate. Well, you certainly haven't introduced me. I'm Charlie Gibson, and, and this is the bookcase with Kate and Charlie. She was very anxious to get going, and and well, she should be. But Barbara Kingsolver has written an extraordinary book, extraordinary on so many levels. And while this is being posted in December, it is the time of year that so many different publications put out their 10 best books of the year. If you read this book, I can guarantee you, guarantee you, I think, that's guarantee with a qualification uh, that it'll be on your top 10 list. I'm 100% sure, I think. I, I think, right. It is a wonderful, wonderful book. On the surface, it can sound somewhat depressing, but it has wonderful humor. It has wonderful characters, and you will root for Demon Copperhead, and you will find great humor in this book, I think, Kate. I think so as well. And again, the elevator pitch is that this is a modern retelling of David Copperfield in rural Appalachia with fentanyl. Boy, doesn't that sound like it's going to be a fun, raucous hayride, except for it is. It's an amazing, amazing book. And it really exposed that part of the country to me in a way that hadn't been up until this point. I think Barbara Kingsolver, who's such a, an incredible writer, she wrote The Poisonwood Bible, which I love, The Bean Trees, which I love, Flight Behavior. She's an incredible writer. And she's from this part of the country, and I think she's angry. And after I read this book, I understood that anger in a way that I don't think I ever had before. I'd be angry too. And I think that this story tells that story with joy and humor, which you wouldn't expect, but it was illuminating to me also, I felt. I think she is angry in many respects. She depicts the people of that part of the country as being overlooked and being looked down upon. And she is angry about that. And Demon Copperhead expresses so often in this book the fact that if you're born into this kind of milieu, if you're born into expectations of poverty, if you are born with nothing, it is almost impossible to pull yourself out of that. And at one point he says, when you're born with nothing and you die with nothing and you lose so much in between, and it's very plaintive uh, the way he writes about the area of the country, anticipating that he doesn't think it's possible for people to pull themselves out. She really does a wonderful job of alerting us that this part of the country needs to be paid attention to and needs to be considered much more than it is. It's a wonderful job. You had a good idea, Kate, I thought, which was to get her to read part of the beginning of the book. Yeah, I didn't feel like I could do her words justice. So we had Barbara read a few telling sentences from the first chapter of Demon Copperhead. So here she is reading a couple of sentences from the book. Kid born to the junkie is a junkie. He'll grow up to be everything you don't want to know. The rotten teeth and dead zone eyes. The nuisance of locking up your tools in the garage so they don't walk off. The rent by the week motel squatting well back from the scenic highway. This kid, if he wanted a shot at the finer things, should have got himself delivered to some rich or smart or Christian, non-using type of mother. Anybody will tell you the born of this world are marked from the get out, win or lose. Me though. I was a born sucker for the superhero rescue. Did that line of work even exist in our trailer home universe? Had they all quit Smallville and gone looking for bigger action? Save or be saved? These are questions. 
You want to think it's not over till the last page. Barbara Kingsolver, it is wonderful to have you in the bookcase. Super excited to have you here. I did some research. This seems like a unique project. You're rewriting a classic in a modern setting. I mean, I hate to do, where did you get these wacky ideas, but how did this come to you? Well, first, in my defense, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm not the first person to do this. I mean, every classic has been written and rewritten from King Lear, you know, as in Jane Smiley's 1,000 Acres to on and on. And I will also say that Shakespeare got King Lear from someplace else. All of his plots were based on previously written works. So it's not, I guess, when I say in my defense, it's just that I didn't dream this up, the idea of, of transposing a classic to modern times. But this did come to me in a really weird way. I didn't plan on it. I just knew I had to write about this generation of orphans that we have in southwestern Virginia. I live in southern Appalachia. It's ground zero of the opioid epidemic. Lots of talk is going on about the good guys and the bad guys here, but nobody's talking about the kids who've lost their parents. And we have truly a generation of kids here whose families have been devastated by this epidemic. So I wanted to write about them. I didn't know how to sort of to spin this dark story in a way that would really get readers to come in and, and, and follow along. It's a tough sell, right? People have their ideas about addiction and choices. And how was I going to counter all that? I had no idea. And then Charles Dickens said, look, I, <laughs> this is orphans totally are my bailiwick. I did this. The Victorians didn't want to hear it either. But you just give them a really good story. And most importantly, you let the child tell the story. So I did. Did you start writing a book about Appalachia and the kids who are orphans and the amount of fentanyl and drug addiction that there is in that area and then realize, oh, my goodness, this is paralleling David Copperfield? Or did you start thinking, I'm going to transpose Copperfield to the modern day? Well, that's a good question. There are many different ways an author writes a book. It's not one process. I think about a book for years, sometimes a lot of years, before I really begin to write, you know, sentences and, and paragraphs and scenes and chapter one and chapter two. I, I sort of cook it on the back burner, usually while I'm writing other things. So that's where this book was. It was cooking on the back burner because I live where this book takes place. I was watching the kids watching the story unfold, watching how families have imploded and just kind of taking note of the whole crisis and worrying, worrying about how to tell the story because I knew I had to. It didn't move from the back burner to the front until the day that I had that grand inspiration to tell the story in a Dickensian way. And in fact, I had that inspiration while I was sitting at Charles Dickens's desk in a place called Bleak House in Broadstairs, where I, which was being run as a bed and breakfast. I just booked myself in on a whim at the end of a book tour. I had a weekend to just rest before applying home. I saw this online, Bleak House, former home, Charles Dickens. He wrote David Copperfield here. So I thought, what the heck, and booked myself in. And I kind of thought, how Dickensy could it really be? 
Well, it was really Dickensy, down to like Bob Cratchit behind the desk and Little Dorrit limping down the hall. I mean, it wasn't like <laughs> these were real people. It wasn't a reenactment, but it just it was so atmospheric. It was November. There was an ice storm outside. The sea was roiling, and they just said, "Well, <laughs> nobody else is here because why would they be um, in, the middle, in the middle of November?" So just have the run of the place, and so. I found Dickens's study, which they still, they had, you know, here in the U.S. there would be velvet ropes, right? There in the U.K. it was just Charles Dickens's house. I have a seat. So I sat at his desk. There was his stuff lying around. I mean, you know, not like person, not uh, his laundry, but there were manuscripts and playbills and all this Dickensian stuff lying around. And there was a copy of David Copperfield that he'd given to the prime minister to carry with him. And I realized this was sort of a gesture of outrage, you know, saying this story, which of course David Copperfield was his story. It was the most personal of his books because he lived through that structural poverty, the poor house and what we would now call foster care and getting bounced around. And so he wrote that story and he gave it to the prime minister. And that's when I really started to feel him speak to me as I was sitting there at his desk where he wrote that novel. And it was just this charge. You don't get to let go. You have to do this, but you let the kid tell the story. And right there and then I had this vision of this redheaded kid, my David Copperfield, which who would be called Demon Copperhead. Actually, the demon came later. I just saw him as Copperhead. And at that desk, I wrote, first of all, I got myself born. Um, I started writing it at his desk. And then I brought him home with me and he sat right here you know, next to me at my desk. I'm interested to know what the process was like. Did you read a chapter, put it down and write? Did you say, I've read it once. I need to get this thing as far away from me as possible so it doesn't get in my head. Like, how did you handle the potential pressure of that parallel? I didn't feel any pressure. First of all, the man gave me permission, right? Second of all, nothing comes out of this room until I'm sure it's working. So that's like step one in any project is to give myself permission to write a terrible first draft because if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. Nobody's going to know. Even my dog who's right here won't know because <laughs> uh, he can't read. So I, you know, I, I have control over this process. I'm going to try. Everything I write is daunting, uh, verging on impossible when I begin it. That's how I know I've started something good. If I feel like for sure I'm going to crash and burn. If it feels really scary, that's how I know I'm going to be working at the edge of my powers. So, no, I, I wasn't scared. I thought, I got to try this. It sounds really, really hard. So that's catnip. How I actually did it is, well, of course, first, I reread David Copperfield on the plane home. I remembered chapter one, I am born, and that he was born in the call, born inside the amniotic sac, and that gave him a superpower that he would never drown. We all remember that part that much. So I was able to kind of like hammer out chapter one, thanks to the wonder of downloadable books whose copyright has expired, I was able to just you know, <laughs> get it and, and read it on the way home. And the whole thing kept working. I thought this is going to work. This is going to be this is going to work. I can do this. Of course, it's incredibly challenging to figure out what is the modern equivalent of a shoe black factory? What are the modern equivalents of indigent boys homes where kids are sent when they don't have their parents don't have money? What is my 
region's version of child labor. Well, I knew all those things. And so I started plotting it out in my mind. And as far as the mechanics of it, what I did when I got home, I always work on a computer and I always, as I said, I'm very architectural. I plot out the whole novel before I really start writing. So I know the beginning, middle and end. In this case, the, the beginning, middle and end was known 150 years ago, but I opened an Excel file and I just, because David Copperfield has a lot of short chapters, which is part of Dickens mode, his MO. This is how he gets through a long book. You know, that feeling when you're reading at night and you say, oh, six more pages in this chapter, I can do that. And then on page six and a half, he gives you this hook that pulls you in. So you have to read the next chapter. I knew that was the secret to telling the story. So I opened an Excel file in, with 66 cells and I wrote a sentence in each cell. What happens in David Copperfield? And then under it, I started filling in what happens in my version. It's working out the parallels the characters, all of it. I got the sense you were having fun because in some ways there are scavenger hunt aspects, you yeah. know, Angus to Agnes. And so every time you would clue me in on something, I'd be like, yes, 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 yes. That's in the book. Right. Uriah Heap is U-Haul piles. Steer forth the narcissistic dangerous friend is fast forward the narcissistic dangerous football hero. It was, yeah. As I say, you don't have to have read David Copperfield, but if you do, you're going to find all these little private jokes between, you know, Charles <laughs> and me, which are not private anymore, obviously. There are so many wonderful sentences in it. The wonder is that you could start life with nothing, end with nothing, and lose so much in between. But as I read, though, certainly there are a lot of drug references into it in the area. And Katie, Katie, when we talked to John Irving, asked him if Dickens were writing today. You write about sexual politics, which is one of the problems in our day. And he wrote about poverty and family. What would Dickens be writing about today? But you really do transpose what he writes about poverty and put it in the modern day. But so much is about family. So much is about family, the longing for it. And if you have it, how life, if you don't have it, rather, life becomes a search for it. It's very poignant. Well, yes, and it is. I mean, this is a novel about drugs and about what sort of the ravages of opioid use disorder. But de more deeply than that, it's a novel about poverty that's built into a place by history and what that does to people. And one of the things it does, as you say, is it ruptures families. It leaves people growing up longing for more than they can have, longing for some kind of validation. And that's where drugs come in. So I'm absolutely convinced that if Dickens were writing now, this is what he'd be writing about. Drugs, as, as Demon tries to tell you many times in this novel, they're not the problem. They're the solution. They're not a good solution, but they're, only, they're the only solution at hand for a whole lot of people who are living in a world that continually shows them everything they can't have. You have been known up until this novel, I think, largely for writing from a female perspective. You wrote so well from a boy to a man's perspective. And again, it's somewhat of a cliche question. How did you get in the mind of a man? But I mean, how did you go about switching that perspective and doing it so well for an age that requires such a unique adolescent boy perspective, as it were? Well, I guess the short answer to that question is 
I raised two daughters, so I've spent a whole lot of time around teenage boys. Um, I, you know, <laughs> for better or worse. I've, yeah, I know the language. I know the desires, and you know, I know what they do to a refrigerator, and um, you know, and we writers we write what we know, but we also imagine. I mean, I love writing ecosystems of characters that don't leave out women which is still rare, sadly, it's common enough to tune into a movie and watch it for 30 minutes without seeing a single woman, which I yes. did last night when someone was watching Lord of the Rings. I said, is it bothering nobody else that this entire world has no females in it? Oh, and right then, a, like a scholarly maid came across the back and someone said, okay, there's a woman. So we're just so used to that, that people don't see it. So I guess my writing is known for female perspectives, because I write about the actual world I inhabit, which is full of women. But I love, you know, experimenting with points of view. I have written from the point of view of it, the lacuna is narrated by a gay man. And before that, actually, my second novel, long, long ago, Animal Dreams, had dual narrators. One was a young woman, and the other was her father, who had Alzheimer's. So I felt confident to <laughs> right from the point of view of a mind that was falling apart along the seams. So, because I figure I can imagine that it didn't feel like a stretch. I just heard the guy talking to me. And the thing is, I know his language. I know his passions, his hungers, his need to be seen, all those things. And I think when we think about point of view as writers, we probably approach it in the way that I've heard actors speak of inhabiting a role we tap into those parts of our own experience that are relevant, and then we just roll them out. So I've been, you know, a hungry teenager. I've been an ostracized middle schooler. I know the cootie game and the slam books. I have more in common with Demon than people might imagine. And I think we all, or most, have had those stretches of our lives where we felt abandoned. So you just tap into that. You concentrate on the parts that you know, and then you ask a male reader to help you with the rest. <laughs> you know, you have to run your manuscript by the experts. And I ran this by not teenage boys, but recently recovering teenage boys um, <laughs> in their 20s. I do a ton of revision. And a lot of what I do in revision is condense, 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 take out every excess word. And in a book this long, it needs to be tight. There can't be any extra no excess, no side trips down an alley that doesn't quite take you anywhere. No indulgence, no paragraph with two different images in it. Just pick the best one, throw away the other one, however good it is, or just keep it for later. I did a lot of slimming down and paring down. And I did a lot of sort of toning, kind of dialing back his voice because Demon, when he first started telling the story, the first version of Demon was so angry he was almost toxic because he has plenty to be angry about. But I also realized as a kindness to my readers, he can't start that way. You have to love him first and then you love his anger only once he's earned it. You have to get into his life deeply enough to understand and have compassion for how mad he is that no adult in his life can be counted on. Yeah, you write so much about that, that when you are born into the kind of circumstances that he is, and then you live this kind of life, so often he says to you, you know, once you're in this milieu, you can't get out of it. And I thought this is very 
discouraging. You mentioned the first line, first I got myself born, but later you say in the book, born in the mobile home. That's like the Eagle Scout of trailer trash. It. I felt this is really discouraging. You're not giving him much hope. Did you feel that as you wrote? Well, I think that his situation would be deemed hopeless by most onlookers, especially if this is news to them, that there are parts of the country that are so where where every kind of, of help is spread so thin, from medical care to the foster care system and everything. Demon has this quality of resilience. Part of it is anger. Part of it is just this sort of tough decision he's made to count on himself and his peers. He knows that his caseworker is probably going to forget his name. He gets his best friend Maggot to help him out when he needs help. He kind of builds his own structure of support because he has that resilience. There's a scene where he's put in a new school and he sees the guidance counselor and he's just expecting the same old, same old, you know, the guidance counselor is going to tell him what a screw up he is. Well, this is an unusual guidance counselor who has read all of his files, including his caseworker and his uh, everything terrible that's happened to him and his parents and so forth. And this guy, this counselor says, well, one thing I know about you is that you are resilient. And Demon's never heard that word. He thinks it's a diagnosis. And he says, are you going to give me drugs for that? Um, <laughs> that's um, right. The only answer he's ever known, these are prescription drugs. These kids are medicated from the get-go. So what I tried to build into that voice, that point of view and that storytelling voice is, look, I'm telling you this story because I've survived. You know he's going to be alive at the end because he's looking back. He's telling this from the ripe age of probably 29 or 30. He's saying, this is, you know, it's kind of the hero's journey. This is what I went through. I'm still here. Right. And he is he belongs to a very large class of people in this country for whom survival is resistance. Mm. Yeah, I wanted to ask you one more question, although it's not really a literature question. I mean, given what you wrote about and what you just talked about, I'm getting a master's in library science and in education. And we have a lot of discussions about whether the United States is still a meritocracy. Uh-huh. And whether or not we can still sell the message to kids of pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. Can we? I, I think it's a lie. Um, <laughs> I think it's been a lie for a long time. And I think that myth, which is so built into our national identity, it's our main kind of our creation myth of what holds us together as a country. And it is such a disservice to the kids who are born poor who have no access to even dental care. A lot of people where I live have a lot of kids, you know, get to the age of 20 without ever having seen a dentist because they can't. Like think what toothaches do to your school performance. The danger of the myth of the meritocracy is that the corollary is like, if you're smart, okay, if you're smart enough and if you work hard enough, you will succeed. So the corollary to that is if you're not succeeding, if you're living among people who none of whom have succeeded, either you're stupid or you're not working hard. So it has a backlash. And so there's so much shame to poverty, which is compounded by the popular culture and seeing all the people with all the things that you don't have. The danger is it's so toxic. That shame is so toxic. And kids, I think kids give up on themselves. Adults give up on themselves. And I think it's interesting that where I live, Appalachia, which has been 
quite deliberately suppressed for 200 years, really, by outside interests. We've been treated as an internal colony of the United States by outside financial interests that come, scoop out the goods and leave a mess behind, deliberately suppressing our culture of education, deliberately suppressing alternative opportunities for employment so that people would just grow up, work in the mines, grow up, work in the mines. So our culture, it's very interesting to me, is that Appalachian culture is a culture of modesty. We are always the butt of our own jokes. You know, that's how you know an Appalachian person. If they tell a story, they're going to laugh at themselves. It's what we do. When I was growing up, I heard all these sort of advice in the guise of cultural mores, especially for women. You don't go parading yourself around. The tall weed gets cut. I mean, people don't necessarily aspire to going to college because that means you're going to leave your family, leave your home and betray your people. I'm fascinated by, and that really, I mean, and you can see that in this, in this novel, how, you know, when, when Demon is accidentally uh, diagnosed as gifted, because he is, he's really, really smart, just not, you know, in some of the most obvious ways. He's like, don't tell anybody. I mean, they <laughs> never let me play football. It's really a part of our culture. And I think part of that is a self-defense against the shaming and the condescension that we experience every day at Appalachians, seeing ourselves portrayed on TV as dumb hillbillies. To quote you back to yourself, a very pertinent sentence, you get to a point of not giving a damn over people thinking you're worthless, mainly by getting there first yourself. You use a worded, a loaded word. You use the word deplorables. Yeah. Which, of course, entered into the election sphere when Hillary Clinton used that word. Did you use it intentionally? I sure did. That word came out, went back, came out, went back. Yes, it gives a little, like a shudder to progressive readers. I actually really like Hillary Clinton. I think it's terrible that that mistake was magnified grandly. But... <laughs> That's a passage where Demon is learning how words that outsiders use against us get, uh, we turn them around and use that. He's having this conversation with Mr. Pegg and who likens it to the N word. It's a word that other, hillbilly is a word that's sort of been used against us. And so we claim it and use it in a way of pride so that we can't be hurt by it. And there's a whole list of those. And you see them here around here on the bumpers of cars. I see them every day and they are redneck, hillbilly and deplorables. I think, and yes, it was intentional because if progressive readers come across that and do a little shiver of, oh, I have probably been thinking of these people in a really condescending way. Uh, yeah, you have. And we can see you. As Demon says, do they think we don't even have cable? We do. We can see. Barbara Kingsolver, this is a wonderful book. Both Katie and I really loved it. Thank you so much. Demon Copperhead. It is a very compelling read, and you write about a society that uh, is worth reading about. Thank you ever so much for being with us. Thank you so much for your interest. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. 
We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. Barbara King Solver, Rapid Fire, most influential book in your life. John Steinbeck's Cannery Row. Oh, I love that one. Why? Because it's about really ordinary people, and it's beautiful. I read it when I was pretty young, and it's the first time I realized that ordinary people, like those I was living among in small-town Kentucky, could be important enough to be in a novel, to make an entire novel. I never knew that before. I thought novels had to be about great and important people. Okay, if you could have five minutes with President Biden to talk about rural populations in Appalachia, what would you say to him? I would tell him we need broadband. We need employment opportunities. We need respect. We need attention from the airwaves to become visible to ourselves and others. We have been neglected and ridiculed for so long by the urban half of this country that we're like a country that needs special assistance. Is there a lesser known book that you recommend that people read? Oh, well, there are, there are a thousand of those. For what reason? I mean, for if, they, if you want to read a novel that's perfectly about everything, I would recommend Middlemarch. That's my favorite novel. I reread it all the time because every time there's more in it. If you want to think about your relationship to being alive and the natural world and joy, I would recommend Annie Dillard's Pilgrim at Tinker Creek. I feel like you finish that book, you can't look at life without gratitude. If I wasn't a writer, I would be... Um, a knitwear designer. <laughs> There's a surprise. I knit. I love hand knits. I do every part of fiber except spinning. We raise Icelandic sheep. We make the wool into yarn and I knit sweaters. I love designing hand knits. And so, yeah, that's not what you were expecting, is it? None at all. No, but it's great. Is there a revered book that you read that you're sorry you read? Franny and Zoe. What I know now about Salinger and Young Women, it's kind of poisoned that well. Is there a book that brought tears to your eyes, that made you cry? Oh, sure. Sure, many. Most recently, <sighs> wow, Hamnet, Hamnet, Maggie O'Farrell. I just wept. 
And finally, a, a question that we find instructive in five words, just five words, what would you like the rest of your life to be? Just what it is now. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you. I love answers like that. Barbara Kingsolver, and I take a lot from this because I went into the reading of Demon Copperhead with the feeling that this is one of America's really finest writers. And I came away feeling that even more, Kate. I've read a few of her books. You've read more than I have. But this is, I think, her finest work by any measure. Hoysonwood Bible, of course, was very, very popular. This should be even more popular because it's a, it's a real act of ledger domain that she pulls off in using the parallels to David Copperfield, but also in depicting this part of the country, I think, in such stark relief, as I said, in such a sympathetic way. It's going to sound terribly sheltered, but this book was a teaching moment for me. Hmm. She taught me so much about that part of the country. I don't know why I had never wrapped my head around the number of orphans that would be in that part of the country, uh, their parents taken from them by the incredible drug crisis brought on by the pharmaceutical companies. And I don't think this country talks about it enough. I think one of the thing that I take away that really stays with me from this interview is really almost a piece of writing advice. She knew that Demon Copperhead, her main character, was going to be angry. She knew he was going to be angry, and he had a right to be angry. I thought what she said was really interesting was that you can't write an angry character angry right off the bat. The anger has to be earned. You have to like them first, and then you'll follow them when they get angry. And I thought that that was a really interesting piece of writing advice that I hadn't thought of. And I think also contributes a good deal to why I fell in love with the character of Demon Copperhead and why I fell in love with this novel. Yep. I feel exactly the same way. It may be a two-generational look at a book, but it's also a parallel look at the book because we both absolutely loved it. And I can say with great assurance that if you read it, you will love this book. I can't urge it upon you enough. Put it on your Christmas list if it isn't there already. Absolutely. Bookstore this week. Rainy Day Books in Kansas City, Missouri. Vivian Jennings, who has been involved with this bookstore for a long, long time. And there's really only one thing missing from this chat with Vivian Jennings. It's me. It's really, it's, it's me. Yeah, it's my, you know, the thing that's missing is minor. It's petite. It's we. You won't even notice it. What you guys don't get to listen to when you're at home. You don't hear the swearing that happens because of technical issues week after week because technology, as you know it, folks at home is um, really, really fun. So this was one of those great interviews where we were able to get me, we were able to get the bookstore owner and dad was sort of waving from you know the back windshield as we were driving away. We could not hear him. We could not get him to join the call. We tried, we tried, we tried, we tried, we tried. Well, and, and I would- Sisyphusian and we, we failed. I would point out that my questions uh, for Vivian Jennings were, were really spot on. And, um, and and would have made would have so improved uh, the chat with her, but for some reason I got cut out. I don't know if Kate did it intentionally or whatever. But anyway, here's here's Kate talking to Vivian Jennings at the Rainy Day Bookstore in Kansas City, Kansas, across the river, Kansas City, Kansas, the Rainy Day Bookstore, which has a great history. Vivian Jennings, it is so terrific to have you in the bookcase. Your store, Rainy Day Books is, if I am not mistaken, about to turn 50. Have you been there for all of those years? I've been there for all the years. We're actually 47. At November 5th, we were 47 years old. Yes. Wow. And I'm about that old. So how did you fall into owning a bookstore? You know what? I was in international relations, international law major in college. 
but I married a writer. After my kids were ready to start school, I really, really wanted to do something because my parents and had sacrificed a lot for me to get my education because I was born really poor. And so I really thought I want to do something. And there was a little tiny space up the street from me in a little shopping center in Fairway, Kansas. It was 450 square feet. And so I had $2,000 of my own money. And so I decided that I was going to open a bookstore. My mother was a huge reader also. So I started in the paperback exchange business. And I thought that had been done in a lot of places, but they were always in dustier places, you know, not in a really nice shopping center. And so I decided, well, I would try that. I thought the idea of trading and recycling paperbacks was great. I think one of my early days was $14. <laughs> <laughs> but I hope to go on from that. I did. What is an actual paperback exchange and how did you make any money off of it? Or did you make any money off of it? I mean, $14 <laughs> a day, notwithstanding. Well, what you do is you people bring in their paperbacks and you give them, I gave them a quarter of the value of their books and then they could buy a trade for other books, other paperback books at 50% off. So the 50% of the retail price. And keep in mind that in those days, a paperback was 95 cents. <laughs> it was a little challenging. But what happened is I made a deal that if I did okay, if I made some money, that they would let me move around the corner to the front of the shopping center if something became available then. My customer started saying to me, we love talking to you about books and love trading our used books here, but we would like to buy our new books from you. And so I said, well... Okay, I, I think I can do that. I would put as many new books in there as I could afford. So I basically never borrowed any money. I just would buy a few new books and then sell those and then buy a few more and then expand as I could. So it just kind of grew from there. Anyway, at some point, I started doing events, smaller events, you know, with different authors. Judy Bloom was one, Dr. Laura of those days was one, Bill Bradley. So started doing these smaller events at the store. At some point, I decided, you know what? I'm not going to be defined by my geography here. I have this much space. That's all I can do. But I want to do bigger things. So I decided I had a new partner by then. I had gotten divorced and I had met this wonderful guy who was a customer. And so we decided that we were going to go off site. And we had a friend who was a minister who had a big church and so we went and met with them and said, this building is great. Your auditorium is great, but it sits vacant a lot of nights of the week. So how about if we bring an audience to you, bring people to your church, and then we use it to have events. And so it seated 1,250 people. And so that's when we launched the much bigger events and decided to host much bigger authors and had the capability of doing that. Oh, yeah. You've had, I mean, you've had King, you've had Grisham, yes. you've had, I mean, you've had some really, really big names in that space. Yeah. We've had almost all the people of the day in that space. And it's given a wonderful opportunity to connect to the community and to give back to the community because the community had always been so supportive of me that we felt like we really wanted to share the resources that we had to raise awareness and money for all these wonderful organizations that we have in Kansas City. Give our listeners, if you could, just a little reader's digest on what the gift box program is and what they can get if they reach out to you guys. You have different levels of it, and it depends. There's more in the larger boxes, $75 boxes, than there are 
on the other boxes. But we do try to use some of the newer things because we want to make sure that people have not already had that. Now, the difference is in children's is that there are some children's books that we just really like and that have been really well received by the kids we know or the parents. And so we do put some tried and true things in there. Where is the Green Sheep is my favorite one to put in. It's just a great book. All the parents like it. It's fun to read. And the kids like it too. When you put those gift boxes together, do you do pre-interviews with your customers to find out what that person that they're purchasing for may have liked? Most of them go as gifts, actually. So we don't necessarily connect with the person who's getting it. But we will talk to the customer if they have some ideas for it. We can either email back and forth or talk to them on the phone. That's the best. I mean, I work sometimes in a bookstore and that's the wealth. I don't think people who sell pants get that same sort of excitement from selling a great pair of pants. I don't know. There's something about going up to the person who's ringing people out and being like, did you buy the book? Did you buy the book that I handed to her? Did you buy it? And getting excited when you find out that yes, she actually did. That's why I like the holiday season so much because you're talking to your own customers, which is nice and they're used to you and you follow them. But the funnest thing is, is to have people come in and it's like having a puzzle or a crossword puzzle even. They give Mm -hmm. you this information, they give you the clues, and then, wow, you get to solve it. You get to say, this is the book for your uncle. This is the book for your grandmother and so forth. And so I think that's really, really fun. At this time of year, I think it's really good to give someone something that's either inspiring or positive in some ways. So there's a book called Love and Saffron that I really liked. If someone has read 84 Charing Cross Road, then it's about friendship and food and love. There's a thriller called Double Agent. And it's by a writer who wrote a book some time ago called A Single Spy, William Christie. So Churchill at the very beginning is thanking him for saving his life. And so Alexi then hopes that in plans to now disappear, well, instead... MI6 gets a hold of him. He actually is forced to become another double agent as the war goes on. I do like this thriller, I Am Pilgrim, and it's by Terry Hayes. It's the only book that he's written, but it literally is one of the best thrillers I've ever read over all the years. One of the books I really like for nonfiction for the holidays is a book called The River of the Gods, and it's about Richard Burton and then a man named John Speak. They were totally opposite personalities, but at first they go together on the quest for the source of the Nile. One of the things that Candace does is, whenever she writes a book, she travels the route that they did and really gives you the sense of what it's like, the sense of place to be there. Like in River of Doubt, you're actually swatting the mosquitoes. Angela Santamero is the author of a book called Radical Kindness about giving and receiving. And she was mentored by Mr. Rogers. You know, Mr. Rogers, his idea was, and she talks about this in the book, that he said there are three ways to ultimate success. One is to be kind. Number two is to be kind. And number three is be kind. So that is the message of what she's writing in this book. And I read this book maybe two years ago at least. And I read it about once a month because after reading it, it changed my life. Before I let you go, 
I want to say that you're on West 53rd Street in Kansas City, but there's lots of caveats to that. And I want you to give, I want a local to give the caveat so I don't ruin any of the caveats. So Kansas City has a, a road, literally a street. On one side is Missouri. On the other side is Kansas. Runs all the way through the city and so forth. So we're on the west side. And and that's, but people never get it straight. They always want to know Kansas City, Missouri, Kansas City, Kansas. I go, no, no, no. Fairway, Kansas. That's where we are. <laughs> Thank you so much, Vivian Jennings. We look forward to talking to you again. Vivian Jennings of Rainy Day Books on 53rd Street in Fairway, Kansas. Although it sounds like Kansas and Missouri butt up right next to each other in that particular town. And in 2025, she's going to be celebrating 50 years in the book business. So um, it was terrific to talk to her. That's extraordinary. And the stories about what she was doing with paperback books in the first days, I really got a a big kick out of it. Because I could hear the interview. I just couldn't participate. I was going to get into that paper books (laughs) issue in a lot more depth. But but no. Anyway, next week we're going to have our our Christmas buying show. You know, books are usually sort of the last thing that you consider. I have, you know, I need one more present for Fred or whatever. So we're going to talk to six different bookstore owners around the country about six different categories. Uh, We'll talk about fiction, nonfiction. We'll talk about coffee table books, cookbooks, mysteries. Mysteries always a big deal and and young adult literature with with a breakdown of each age group that you might want to uh, consider. Uh, books that you, that you, I think, would be good on your Christmas list. You know, normally we let authors say whatever they want to say to close the show, um, within reason. Um, not that anybody tried to tell a dirty joke or anything. Kate, 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 Kate. So we love to read the acknowledgments at the end of the book, um, because it tells us usually something biographical about the writer and maybe the motive um, behind the writing of the book. And Barbara sums up almost, she almost puts a dedication at the end of this acknowledgement and it's really beautiful. And so, although we normally let writers pick their coda, this time we said, you have to read this and she did. So I'll let Barbara close us out after you listen to our closing credits. The Bookcase is a production of ABC Audio. It is produced by David Canada in conjunction with SureCan Productions. Brenda Salinas Baker is our senior producer. Liz Alessi is our executive producer. And we want to give special thanks to Josh Cohan, Elizabeth Russo, Nania McLean, and Cameron Chertavian. For the kids who wake up hungry in those dark places every day, who've lost their families to poverty and pain pills, whose caseworkers keep losing their files, who feel invisible or wish they were, this book is for you. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.